Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 166th edition of the show. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks so much for being with us. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be featuring uh, an exchange I had with David Barsamian, author and host of the radio program Alternative Radio, a very groundbreaking uh, project that brought ideas, lectures, and critical thinking and activism as expressed in long format presentations and interviews to public radio and community radio stations all over the Americas, uh, particularly in Canada and the United States. Um, so it was a great pleasure to talk with David Barsamian a little bit about his media project, but what I wanted to exchange with him about was the discussions going on within the left about the calls for negotiations or for peace around war in Ukraine. Um, there's been a lot of mobilization to support uh, Ukrainian refugees and uh, Ukrainian people uh, in the face of the Russian invasion. But also there's been a lot of movement in the left to critique NATO expansionism, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, of course, going back to the frameworks of U.S. imperialism as expressed throughout the Cold War, which has continued and continued to expand eastward post-1989. And this is also a very important part to consider in looking at Ukraine today and critically the huge role that military industrial complex companies are playing in the sense of how much profit they are making uh, within the context of the war. And so I wanted to talk to David about these intersecting issues, also the lack of a cohesive mobilization point amongst a lot of the left. That seems to be shifting a bit in terms of the increasing call for um, an end to war. Um, echoing calls, particularly from the Global South, uh, countries like Brazil calling for uh, peace, South Africa also, an end to the armed conflict. Anyways, we get into some of these nuances in this discussion, and here's my exchange with David Barsamian. Maybe first, um, David, can you just introduce yourself and speak a bit about what Alternative sure. Radio is? And also recently your focus on talking about uh, the need for negotiations around war, war in Ukraine. Thank you. Hi, this is David Barsamian. I'm the host and producer of Alternative Radio. I decided to start Alternative Radio because I was very unhappy with the corporate media's presentation of what they considered uh, reality the excuse-making and backsliding and support for U.S. imperialism, for predatory capitalism, and for environmental policies that are literally killing the earth. So it's a very urgent time. It was then. It's much more now with the uh, danger of a wider war in the Ukraine. Uh, I, I'm taken aback a little bit when I hear uh, politicians coming from uh, Washington, Ottawa, and elsewhere, you know, saying things like, whatever it takes, uh, we're here for the long run. We're going to back uh, Ukraine with more and more weapons. Where is this going to lead? I mean, that's the question we need to ask. If 
you know, this week it's, uh, well, last week it was tanks. Uh, this week it's uh, fighter jets. Um, next week will be another kind of long-range missile. Um, on and on, the steady escalation of weaponry, of course, is music to the ears of the military-industrial complex here uh, in the United States. And, you know, Canada is part of that military-industrial complex as well. And so when they're talking about war and, you know, the possibilities of uh, wider war, uh, the dangers here are really about survival. Uh, I don't want to, you know, overstate it, but we're talking about annihilation, not a war like World War I or World War II or any of the many uh, localized wars uh, since 1945. Uh, we're talking about the end of life on Earth if there is a use of nuclear weapons. And if, you know, if the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, is pushed into a corner, he may feel that he has no you know, option except to use uh, nuclear weapons, which would be a horror beyond description. And, you know, why, why is this war going on? Why did it happen? This is not to excuse Putin for a clear violation of the UN Charter and international law. But do you sense any irony when the United States is lect lecturing other countries about international law and the UN Charter? I mean, you know, I live in a country that routinely violates uh, international law and the UN Charter. Just ask the people of uh, Grenada, of Panama, of Iraq, of Cambodia, of Laos, of Vietnam, on and on. There's been one, you know, U.S. violation of international law and the UN Charter. So it's a bit rich for Washington to lecture other countries about the rule of law. What they mean is, you know, to translate it into simple English is what we say goes. There's one set of rules for the master in Washington, and there's another set of rules for all the vassals and all the putative enemies uh, around the world. And the again, the hypocrisy here and the double standards are, are pretty sharp. And, you know, it takes a well-disciplined media, which we do have here in the U.S., uh, not to see those contradictions. So, you know, Alternative Radio has done multiple programs on uh, Ukraine, giving, giving the background uh, with John Mearsheimer, with Ray McGovern, with Katrina Vandenhuvel, um, with Timothy Snyder. And I must say, Timothy Snyder, it was a bit pro-war. Uh, he sees a, a victory for Ukraine as some kind of affirmation for uh, democracy. I mean, I think that's a bit of a stretch. But uh, anyway, that was uh, Snyder's opinion. We've had Chomsky talking about uh, Ukraine and the war. You know, and always the crucial thing here is to give backdrop, to give context, to give history to understand why things are happening, not simply to come to the table and say, war is bad. Yes, war is bad. Is is Putin a dictator? Yes. Is Russia an autocratic state? Yes. But why did this war happen on February 24th, 2022? What prompted Russia 
to launch its attack. This is not to justify it, but it's to, to explain that it was a series, not one, a series of provocations from the U.S.-led NATO alliance, of which Canada is a prominent member, to uh, keep moving the goalposts, to keep pushing the envelope to a point where Russia felt completely uh, threatened. You know, what if uh, the U.S., it's not a what if, it's probably, you know, could happen, you know, had a military alliance along the 49th parallel with all its guns and troops, you know, pointed at Canada. Would Canada feel secure and safe and say, well, you know, that's just big big power politics, or would Canada respond? And I think, you know, Canada would respond if there was a, a military alliance between, let's say, Alaska uh, and continental United States and Canada is in between. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, we try to point out on uh, alternative radio, which you can hear on CKUT every Thursday evening uh, at 7. And I'm so glad you know, to be able to talk to you and have this opportunity uh, to try to explain, you know, what's what's going on. Explanations are not justifications. Explanations are providing the background, the nitty gritty information that you require to understand why a certain issue uh, continues. Let's try to address some of these challenges that exist right now within um you know, movements for social justice and equality and movements for uh, emancipation around the world. Uh, there's a lot of uh, agreement on a number of issues. If we want to talk about global economic inequality, we broadly agree that this is abhorrent and we can point to corporate oriented free trade agreements and corporate oriented state policies that have, you know, deepened inequality. Uh, you know, we won't get into all of that now. If we want to talk about Palestine, I think there's more and more of a consensus that, you know, the occupation of Palestine is a systemic injustice. It's colonialism today. When it comes to Ukraine, let's be honest, within the left, there is not a united position. And, um, I am interested in trying to talk with people about trying to find points of consensus. You see like a lot of people talking about, for example, um, the ways that, um, you know, the NATO alliance has pushed Russia into war. Okay, you've mentioned this, uh, David, and I can see that. You have others talking about the autocratic regime of the Russian state and the repression of social movements in Russia. That is accurate. Um, how can we find a position to consolidate around? Uh, some people are calling for a push for negotiations. Um, we know that in these contexts of war, that often um, people who are already facing social marginalization or economic marginalization, you know, this could be in the Ukraine context or in the Russian context, are not going to benefit from a context like this, a context of war. Any thoughts about this? Well, I think, you know, the U.S. and, well, and Ukraine are preconditioning uh, before we, you know, actually get to sit down at the bargaining table. I mean, it's a cliche to say that all wars end at the bargaining table in some kind of 
a peace agreement as Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, a wonderful um, activist organization here in the United States, says we need negotiations, not escalations. And what we're having right now with the introduction of new long-range missiles and, as I mentioned, that whole penelope of uh, weaponry that's going to Ukraine, this is a formula for a long, drawn-out war in which many, many people will be killed and wounded, and there'll be much uh, destruction of uh, infrastructure uh, in Ukraine. And why, you know, again, we need to find some kind of common ground. I don't think you can find common ground when you say a priori that uh, Putin must go, or that Putin is a war criminal and must face a war crimes uh, tribunal. That's not a formula for getting a country to sit down at the table uh, with you if you are bringing those preconditions uh, before sitting down. So peace is absolutely essential. And coming together at the negotiating table, finding common ground and stopping the weapons, stopping the weapons flow, because this is just enabling uh, Ukraine to continue and expand uh, the war with its, you know, portents of a possible uh, nuclear conflagration, which is, as I said, you know, unthinkable and horrible beyond uh, description. So that that history, but speaking a little bit of uh, history, uh, in 1954, I wonder if you uh, knew that it was then the Soviet Union under Nikita Khrushchev who gave Crimea, literally gave Crimea uh, to Ukraine, attached it to the Ukrainian state uh, as a kind of a gift uh, from Khrushchev. And so that has never sat well with the uh, Ukrainian Russian-speaking people in particular in Crimea. Uh, and in the Donbass area, which you hear a lot about, that is uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, it is a majority Russian-speaking area. And in 2014, a civil war broke out after the coup d'etat in uh, Kiev, which is one of these uh, colored revolutions, you know, overthrowing the democratically elected government uh, at that time that was admittedly uh, aligned or friendly with uh, Putin and and Russia. Uh, and so that ignited fighting in that area. And I've seen figures of up to 15,000 people killed in the Donbass area starting in uh, 2014. And of course, that number is much, much more since uh, the February 24th Russian invasion. Thank you for sharing all of that context. Um, we could look at the global situation um, today and say, okay, well, what can social movements contribute to trying to address war in Ukraine? Uh, Western um, po political figures, politicians have been deeply involved. But what are some of your thoughts about the role that social movements, that progressive movements can play in addressing the situation in Ukraine? I'm not talking about, you know, sort of strands on social media that's one thing and that's okay that that plays a role but you know if we think about the 
uh, mobilization against the Iraq War in 2003, you know, social movements played a role in in challenging policy. Um, I'm just wondering any thoughts about what role social movements should be playing today? Well, they should be and are in some instances playing a, a critical role. But, you know, as in the Iraq case of uh, 2003, on February 15th, we saw the biggest mobilization against war and for peace in history. Uh, and what happened? A month after that, about a, a month later, three weeks actually, uh, the U.S. and its uh, allies, including Canada, you know, led the attack on uh, Iraq. So, you know, there there is space for social movements to intervene and to put pressure on the political ruling class. But then you have such things, you know, as the Davos meeting, uh, which has been held recently in Switzerland, where the masters of the universe get together and, you know, divvy up the spoils, as it were. Uh, then you had the G7 uh, meeting just held, again, which Canada participates in uh, very enthusiastically. It's a major, you know, player in, in the G7. And so social movements can put the heat on politicians to listen to our demands for peace, for justice, for equality, whether it be in Palestine, whether it be in Kashmir, or whether it be in Ukraine. It's important to keep the heat on these politicians who feel they have, uh, you know, carte blanche uh, to do whatever they want. But, you know, the dangers here of a wider war cannot be overemphasized. And why take the risk of annihilation uh, and you know, uh, policies that will contribute not to a ceasefire, but to more fire and fire. And if you, you know, play with fire, you'll be burnt with fire. Uh, don't forget, there are also six nuclear reactors in Ukraine one of which is the largest in all of Europe. And there is fighting and shelling in the nearby area. It's temporarily been secured by the IAEA, the International uh, Agency, International Atomic Energy uh, Agency based in, in Vienna. But, you know, and it's intentionally or unintentionally, uh, there could be damage to that reactor or to one of the other five. Uh, and then we'd have uh, quite a catastrophe on our hands. And of course, the ones suffering the most will be the people who live there, the Ukrainians uh, and uh, the near nearby Russia as well. Belarus, Romania, Poland, all the neighboring countries would suffer terribly. So the pressure has to be kept on. We can't just be waving flags and saying, you know, we, you know, uh, the Ukrainians are fighting our fight and they're, you know, going to defeat the, you know, evil uh, Putin. You know, as I said, Putin is no angel. We know who he is. He's an autocrat. He's an, he is a war criminal. But you have to deal not with your friends. You have to deal with your adversaries, with your enemies. And so sitting down and negotiating is the only way out of this potential for a much wider and destructive war. Right now, there's a debate in Canada about sending more military equipment and hardware to Ukraine. So we're talking about like 
leopard tanks, uh, as they're called in in the European context, but you know, super advanced military tanks. We're talking about other weaponry. Why, in your mind, David, is it a progressive position to challenge more arms exports to Ukraine? Because it will just accelerate the level of combat. It will increase the fighting and embolden the Ukrainians, particularly, not to come to the negotiating table and to sit down. Mind you, there there were negotiations going on at the beginning of this war and even later into the war. Uh, where uh, deals were made after talks to secure grain supplies to the Middle East and to uh, Africa. That didn't just fall from the sky. That fell because uh, Erdogan of Turkey kind of brokered this deal between Putin and uh, Zelensky. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about, mention Zelensky, who is a former uh, television uh, star. Uh, He's become quite the um, favorite here in in Washington, in particular, you know, the, both the Democrats and Republicans um, are cheerleading him on, and uh, you know, vowing uh, total and and uh, absolute support with more and more weapons. But you know, it's good for the military-industrial complex in Canada. The war is good for the military-industrial complex in Germany, in France, in Italy, uh, in the United States. But it's not a formula to get out of this war as quickly as possible. It will just extend the hostilities. So there has been uh, negotiations. It can work. They can come back to the table. But, you know, increasing the firepower of the of the belligerents uh, will only extend the war. And that's, that's my main concern now is the... Ex- not just the extension of the war, but it's accelerating. And, you know, there's a lot of talk now of a Russian offensive, you know, once the snow melts uh, in the spring. And, um, you know, we're talking uh, in, at a time when uh, Ukraine is now asking for F-16s as well as uh, guided missiles with long, long-range guided missiles, which could have only one impact, and that is to attack Russia itself then you'd have a much, much wider war. Last question, David. I mean, I think a lot of people are trying to grapple with how to come to terms with what a progressive response uh, to this war would look like. I mean, we can look back to other contexts historically, like within the French socialist movement uh, in the 1930s, there was a huge push for negotiations. And, you know, within other contexts historically, there's been pushes for negotiations. Over time, this sort of idea that conflicts can be resolved militarily um, by states has really been solidified. Um, This is like an issue of intense debate. uh, And I think it's really not simple to have this conversation. So any final thoughts about like, why um, pushing for peace is a strong position and and any historical resonances that that you would be inclined to highlight would be appreciated. Well, it's an interesting point that you raise about uh, you know historical references. i'm I'm afraid, you know, human history is not replete with uh, many, you know, sterling examples of um, 
negotiations leading to a just and honorable peace. They usually lead to unjust and dishonorable uh, pieces. Um, you know, we saw that with uh, the U.S. wars in in Indochina, the U.S. wars in Iraq, uh, as a result of that invasion and Afghanistan and the d- disaster there. Um, guns are not the answer. And to rely on guns as a policy will only lead to further heartbreak and death and destruction. So, you know, finding, as I mentioned, finding common ground and sitting down and talking with your adversary. So, you know, negotiations are not with your friends. There's nothing to talk about with your friends. I love you. You're great. You're handsome. You're brilliant. That's not where negotiations happen. Negotiations happen with your adversary. You know, I hate everything you stand for. I dislike you. You're ugly. You're not smart. You're not brilliant, uh, etc. So, you know, finding that an area where you have the ability to talk to people and to sit down and really work out the really difficult things of finding a peace agreement, uh, at least temporarily, to stop the fighting uh, and to help some of the many, many people who have been uh, relocated, whose homes have been uh, destroyed, and whose lives have been completely uh, upended in you know multiple tragedies that we you know we don't know about, but clearly thousands have perished and thousands more uh, will perish unless we find you know an area of agreement to sit down and to stop the weaponry, stop the weapons flow to Ukraine, and insist that they sit down because uh, they have also made clear not it's not just Washington. That you know they want war crimes tribunals for uh, the Russian leadership, for the oligarchs, for the enablers of the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine. You know th- again, that's not going to be a formula to entice people to engage you in dialogue. It'll what will result in is a monologue, which is what we have right now. We have you know a microphone that's completely turned off from one side to the other, and there's no communication. And that's a very dangerous situation, uh, given the fact, as I mentioned, that there are six nuclear reactors, including the biggest one in all of Europe, uh, in the Ukraine. We're risking so much. Humanity is risking so much. So it's, in my view, negotiations or annihilation. And, you know, I think it was, um, you know, Martin Luther King said, uh, it was it's coexistence or an annihilation. Thanks so much, David, for taking the time to talk today. Great pleasure, Stefan, and thank you for your terrific work. That was an interview with David Barsamian speaking about war in Ukraine. David is the host of Alternative Radio, an excellent weekly broadcast. This has been another edition of Free City Radio. I share this program on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal, on CGLO 1690 AM, on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Treaty Territory of the Métis Nation, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario, and CFRU 101.9 FM in Victoria, British Columbia. 
You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just look up Free City Radio. Tell a friend if you like this program. I'd love to um, um, have your support. This grassroots outreach really helps a program like this. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal, and I will talk to you next week. Take care. <laughs>